Welcome to What Do You Understand, brought to you by Global Partners for Development. I'm your host, Rhea Pullen, and together we'll explore the world of philanthropy and development, confronting global disparities and the impacts of our collective efforts. Joining me is my co-host, Daniel Casanova, the Executive Director of Global Partners for Development. So, are you ready to question what you understand? Let's dive right in. We're thrilled to welcome our guest today, Owen Gaffney, an esteemed sustainability writer, analyst, and strategist. Owen co-authored the visionary book, Earth for All, A Survival Guide for Humanity, which serves as a roadmap to global prosperity within our planetary boundaries. Using state-of-the-art computer modeling, Earth for All presents transformative steps to a sustainable future by 2050, advocating for a reimagined global economic system that works for both people and the planet. Stay tuned as we unpack the transformative insights of Earth for All in an enlightening conversation with Owen Gaffney. So I actually want to start with Owen. Like Daniel told me, he's like, there's this new book out. It's called Earth for All. You have to read it. I'm buying it for you tomorrow and you need to read it. And I was like, okay. And then we got into it and I was like, Daniel, this, this is a really important book. So we've been just big fans, just because of the kind of the work we do is kind of addresses kind of these things. And he's talked to me a lot about what we need to do to move humanity forward. And these were all the points. He's like, this is it. This is the answer. So I kind of just want to talk to you about the evolution. How did, how did this come about? Okay. Well, it's great to be, I mean, the, the origin story for this is really, well, we have to go back. To, Let's go back. Uh, years to 1972. Yeah. And, um, and this, this organization called the Club of Rome commissioned this, this report, uh, called Limits to Growth. Um, and that report was uh, a pretty historic landmark report. It was the first time we'd really got, um, computer models to, to really look at the whole, the whole planet, it's like what's going to happen with the economy, what's going to happen with population, what's going to happen with resource use, and what's going to happen to, you know, with pollution and things like that. And a really, really big broad strokes. Um, and they, they built this really sort of system dynamics model, a complex model for the first time to look at that. And, uh, and they created a bunch of scenarios. And uh, some of those scenarios said, well, you know, if we continue as we are on this exponential journey, Things are not going to go well. You know, everybody will, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, we'll have more food, we'll have more wealth in the world, etc. But we live on a finite planet, and so if you live on a finite planet and you've got exponential growth, at some point you're going to hit hit the walls, you're going to hit the boundaries. And they uh, and they said, well, you know, if we continue on this particular really negative scenario, then we could hit the boundaries um, sometime in the 21st century, and uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe a few decades from now. And if, and if you look at that scenario they created and that picture they created and the graphs and the lines there, that's the scenario we, we followed. Uh, and so, uh, so, so then we, we started looking at it. Well, okay. So what, what happens now? And, uh, and one of them, Jürgen Randers, um, is still working as, uh, as a model. He's, uh, he's, he's now in his seventies and he's absolutely in- incredible figure, you know, like this, uh, you know, father figure in this, uh, system dynamics models. And, uh, and we started talking to him about um, doing doing an update and creating a new model, which we called um, uh, Earth for All. And um, well, in fact, it was called the Earth Four model. And then we we, we turned the project into Earth for All, uh, and uh, and that was a new model to to explore what's going to happen this century, essentially. Interesting. 
So you said that was started in 1972 and tracked from then. Uh, Point years from then, or yeah, well, well, the model. So the team that built the model, um, they they pr produced the report, they published the report. Um, it got a, a lot of attention um, over the intervening years. I mean, it, immediately it was completely challenged. What do you mean there are limits to growth? I mean, there cannot be limits yeah. to growth. And you know, Ronald Reagan a few years later he says, you know, that there's no limits to growth because there's no limits to human imagination and human innovation. And He's right, actually. But there are limits to growth. That well, we live on a planet. And the planet, there's limits to the planet. Yeah. <laughs> all the planetary boundaries, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the big updates, I suppose, since 72 is in 2009, uh, a research paper was published um, on planetary boundaries, a safe operating space for humanity by one of them, um, by uh, Johan Rockstrom, one of the authors on, on the book on the Stockholm Resilience Center. Um, uh, and I used to be part of the, the, the Resilience Center. So that, that um, that planetary boundaries framework was really uh, it was a huge moment for uh, for Earth system science and for sustainability science because you know before we had the planetary boundaries framework you know the scientific community would say well we have this we have climate change we have biodiversity we have pollution we have water we have a huge range of issues um, and they're all interconnected and we'd be telling policymakers that and policymakers would just be looking at us going. Okay, <laughs> it's, uh, everything is right. Everything's just interconnected. And we'd just be nodding. Yes, it, everything's interconnected, and it's everything, everywhere, or, you know, all at once. And they're like, and you were like, yeah, and, and they're going, okay, but we can't really do anything. Yeah. And then the boundaries framework came out and said, okay, everything is connected, but there's nine things we really, really need to worry about. Really, you know, and uh, it's those nine planetary boundaries. That's that's the critical thing. And you know, at that point. Uh, you know, we'd gone beyond three of those boundaries. And in fact, yeah. since that paper came out, we've now analyzed all the boundaries and we can see that we've gone beyond six of the boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. So we're really... And we're getting close to the other ones. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So yeah. we're really... Um, that's that's right. So we're in the danger zone where we yeah. risk uh, very severe consequences consequences for humanity. We, where, you know, with climate change, we risk um, tipping points. And that's very... Uh, very apparent now. We're getting more and more data on um, on the scale of risk with tipping points and how close they are. So um, yeah, so that's uh, that's hard for people to understand. It's hard to make that tangible, right? I mean, especially for people in our economic class. I think it's hard to see it, right? Like it's going to be like it's it's there. I think right. Like as you address like how poverty is so significant in terms of needing to address that to mitigate these like most awful scenarios, but it's like. I think it's hard for people to understand. Like it's hard for people to feel connected to the direness of it. Well, like, I, you, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I know it's almost like, you know, uh, a frog or a lobster in a pot of boiling water, you know, you know, or Slaughter's cat. Harder and, harder and harder and harder. And you don't really, you know, it until it's, in, until it's too late. And I think, you know, with, with tipping points, for example, climate tipping points, we're, we're now coming very close to losing the West Antarctic ice sheet, uh, the Greenland ice sheet, um, and, uh, you know, Arctic sea ice, for example, in, in summer. But, you know, scientifically, we probably won't know 100% that we've crossed those tipping points until like a few decades after we've crossed them, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. So that's that's one of the, that's for me, that's one of the biggest challenges with science communication. You know, people say, oh, you can't be certain, you can't be certain. No, we can't be certain until it's actually happened. But then it's too late. Yeah. It's like uh, we, there's no going back on sort of human timescales. That's it, you know, for hundreds, thousands of years. We're just going to lose them. They've gone beyond the point of no return. And that means, you know, ultimately 
uh, sea level rise of 10 meters, you know, wow. uh, 30 feet um, within uh, within a few centuries, which will have big consequences for, yeah. you know, for, for New York, it'll have big consequences for Los Angeles, San Francisco, for New Orleans, all these places in the U.S. have got, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and even so, even with the state of Florida, people say, oh, well, you know, we'll just build some walls um, in higher and higher and say, well, no, it's you're built on porous limestone. Yeah. Occasionally, there's going to be a sinkhole that swallows your apartment complex. Yeah, if you're living in a porous limestone, the water just just comes yeah. up regardless of. So, and then in the developed world, you know, um, that's obviously a big thing that you know we might be able to adapt to, um, but it'll mean you know deserting some places you just cannot afford to keep. Them. Yes, but in the developing world, you know. You know, in places like Jakarta, which have already sank several meters in, yeah. in the last few decades, you know, uh, you know, the rising seas are going to have a, a huge impact in, uh, you know, China and in India, um, across Africa, etc. So, I mean, it's going to be even more devastating. But that's just one, and just that's just one of the issues, uh, and that we're dealing with. And then, so in the book, this is what, what one of the I, you know, we, 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 we kind of joke that in 1972, when they had basic system dynamics models, at least they had it easy in that uh, the, 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 the planet was still operating in oh, the same yeah. way. With, but for all that, we know that this century, because we looked, you know, what's going to happen between now and the end of the century, we know that we're going through some big transition points. So that makes it even more difficult to create scenarios or any sort of predictions on what happens if we go beyond those tipping points or climate change? What's going to happen when it comes to migration, for example? Or, or yeah, how do you deal with like a hundred million displaced people somewhere like in the Indian subcontinent or something like that, like Bangladesh or anywhere like that? Like we don't know the the world doesn't know what that's that like the impact of what that would be. Yeah, yeah, but but even th those, those numbers, I mean, we could say that you know it's, it could be an order of ten worse than that, like one billion people to three billion people, because okay. you know. Um, on on Earth, we, we have like this a human climate niche. There's a, a climate range that we uh, we're perfectly adapted to, and beyond that climate range, uh, we, we're not adapted to. We just can't uh, we can't function. And beyond that climate range, on Earth is a very small area right now. It's little bits of the Sahara Desert and the Arabian Peninsula and places with very very low population densities. So they're they're the uninhabitable areas of Earth, literally. Um, yeah. For all extent, intents and purposes, uninhabitable. Those areas are going to expand, mm -hmm. and and it's going to create a band of in, uninhabitable um, places around the planet. And within that uninhabitable places, we have places like India yeah. and Pakistan. Um, and so, we, you know, with uh, uh, literally billions of people. So these are the kind of risks we're uh, we're facing. And what will happen there? Will will people be able to adapt? Will people migrate? You know what's what's going to happen. So so you know uh, we this this is this is part of the risk. I mean we're not going to get rid of that risk, but we can significantly reduce that risk if we can reduce emissions very very rapidly. Mm -hmm. Man, how do you not cry all the time when you're talking? You're, talk, you're talking. About, I'm sure you have to, like this is hard. I mean like we don't. I mean we talk about lots of depressing things in our work, but like how do you? I mean like right? It's like you you're talking about this all the time. So. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. I mean, it's it's really it's really tough. And I think for me, um, some one of the the biggest shocks in my career um, it was when um, myself and some 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 of the co-authors here we published a paper on tipping points um, uh, back in 2019, and we identified that you know that a lot of the tipping points we've been talking about um, ten years beforehand 
Um, so uh, we, we'd been making predictions. Well, okay, maybe by 2050, 2060, maybe by 2070, we might be coming closer to those tipping points. Um, so we did an analysis again of where, where, where do we stand with them. And as we looked around the uh, 16 main, main tipping points on Earth, we could find nine of them are already destabilizing right now and that they're already going through unprecedented changes. So we don't know if they've crossed tipping points yet, but what we can say is that 10 years ago, they, they didn't show signs of this scale of change, and, and now they are. But, you know, um, on, but, but I'm reasonably optimistic. I remain, uh, I'm quite an optimistic person, and disproportionately, I think, um, you know, scientists, artists, designers, entrepreneurs, others uh, who, who are creating the future, they tend to be optimistic about creating a better future, a more hopeful future. And I, I do think there's still time to make some big changes. I think we're now living, you know, today on Earth, uh, it's the best time on Earth to, to live. I mean, it, it, we have a better quality of life. Uh, we have, you know, greater longevity. We have better health. We have better job prospects, et cetera, than any time in history. So this is a great time to be alive. And it's... um. And looking out into the future. You're reading Hans Hop uh, Hans Hapsling. <laughs> uh, Hans Rosling. Hans Rosling, yeah, you're <laughs> Yeah, it's good. we we brought a sword for you to swallow after that. <laughs> no, no, sorry. <laughs> Actually, I'm not even sure you're joking. Oh I'm all well, yeah. <laughs> and so how how did you get all of these experts to come together to create this book because you know these are all people from different areas of expertise did you call up your friend and realize this is, needs to be here you know i, I want to know because there's quite a few you know authors in here people who like their expertise how did you get it into one concise which i and which think... one of them is the hardest to work with no i <laughs> sorry <laughs> um so so yeah so i guess it's a coalition of the willing you know people who really mm -hmm. really like like and so uh, you know yeah. um, the Stockholm Resilience Centre is a place of transdisciplinary working. It, it brings to, it brings together people who love working across the boundaries of science and into policy and into business and uh, you know but across the boundaries you know from bio biodiversity to economics from ecology to engineering etc. So I mean that as a as a hub um, the Resilience Centre is just this attractor for people and what I found in uh, w working in science now for 20 years is most most scientists don't operate or think like that. Most scientists are just completely in their silos. So in their silo, yeah. yeah, I don't think they like the idea of maybe collaborating with others, but when it actually happens, they go, "No, nah, don't like it. That's not working." And so, um, uh, so, 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 but there are a small group of people who just love that collaboration, who are working right at the edges of um, of knowledge. So, so they, so. I guess we have a, a, an ecosystem of, uh, of people uh, like that. The Club of Rome is, um, as, as I mentioned earlier, who created the uh, the, uh, the the original limits to growth. Like there must be the world's biggest and best network of systems thinkers. Um, so so we brought together. I mean, so the six main authors, but in fact, it's the work of hundreds of um, uh, of people really. Um, and what we did was brought together a transformational economics commission. So so what we wanted to do is like. Okay, who are the leading economists who are thinking way outside of the box, who are thinking way beyond the current neoliberal paradigm and thinking, you know, where do we need to go? Um, can we get them together? And then and we had the modelers. 
and uh, with Jürgen Randers and, uh, and, and, and others and, and uh, Paris and Stockness. How do we create a model that's really doing something different? And then, then the, so we have these two groups and then we'd have like a scenario and we'd test it on one group and then we'd put it into the model and the model would come out with stuff and then we'd go to the, 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 the economists and they'd go, now we don't like that. That's not really realistic. And then we change things and then we back. So we had like this kind of circle of, um, uh, yeah, like feedback loops of, yeah. um, uh, of ideas to just really test our thinking and go, no, that's not going to work or this is going to work. Because the thing is what we're trying to do is like, you know, you can say, okay, we're going to create, uh, you know, we're going to take away um, debt in um, the developing world or we're going to have progressive taxation here or we're going to invest in health here or something. But what what will that happen? What will happen at the global scale when you're talking about 8 billion people? In the yeah. like, but who are these jerks and institutions and in like the US government that want to like keep debt for like the developing world, right? I mean, like who, like, like why, why is it that we can maintain that? Like, how is it there are institutions that can, I mean, I, mean, I, I get that like there's, well, there's like bigger implications about forgiving it and stuff like that. But ultimately it's like, who are the people that are like, oh no, no, we don't want to figure out a way to like get rid of that. There's, you know, uh, one issue is, you know, what would debt cancellation do though? I mean, at, at a global scale, would, yeah. would it be a big enough change to, to, to deal with some of the problems or would it be, you know, reasonably small? And it turns out it's a big deal. Um, yeah. And it's an even bigger deal now. When we wrote the book, we didn't have the inflation in the world that we do now. Yeah. Um, obviously with um, inflation and then interest rates going up, uh, so the cost of borrowing is very, very high now. And that has a big impact on uh, your borrowing in, in the developing world. Uh, and they can't, you know, afford to uh, to even though solar power is like the best form of power and cheapest form of power, they still can't borrow at rates yeah. that um, they can afford. You know, here in the U.S., if you're building a, a solar um, station outside of New York, you might be able to borrow at four four percent, five percent interest rates. If you're in uh, Indonesia, you're going to be paying twelve percent. You know, and it's just like what? what why? Right. Everyone. Every, you need the electricity in New York. You need electricity in uh, Jakarta. Everyone's got the money to pay for it. You know, uh, what what difference does it make? No, can't can't be done. Um, so we need so and and debt would have a big impact there. You know, if you can um, take away debts, that gives um, more buying power for um, uh, these technologies. And then the five turnarounds was that something once you had all of the modeling, all of that when you guys made that concise five turnarounds, which is ending poverty, inequality, yep. and then empowering women, um, food, and energy. Yes. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. yeah. Pisces. Okay. So what what we were looking for was like a kind of minimum viable product. What's the absolute, you know, in terms of transformations, we, you know, there could be 200, there could be 300 transformations, but what would be the absolute minimum to to drive uh you know to have a good quality of life have well-being for all people within planetary boundaries and uh and it dropped out as those five i mean obviously we need um to change our energy system now yeah. one if we're going to stabilize the climate and uh when it comes to the environment the biggest impact on uh, the on land and the oceans is our, our food use so we need to change our food use i mean that, those two things are obvious um the others i mean so when it comes to poverty and inequality, I mean, those two things need, need to be addressed because, you know, we need to have, you know, if we're going to have well-being for all um, uh, people, 
those in extreme poverty need to come out of extreme poverty. So we need uh, we need to, to raise their GDP to at least fifteen thousand dollars a year. But what we found out is that they're beyond fifteen thousand dollars a year or so. You don't really have much money gains. You know, you don't see uh, it's kind of your plateaus. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Your well-being yeah. plateaus. You kind of um, uh, you're you know you're you, you you're getting richer, richer, but you don't actually have any more benefits uh, in a in in many countries. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's 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 you know it's it's fairly negligible. So um, so that's so that was um, so so we need to to end poverty um, for, for everybody to have well. But then on inequality, I mean, not not only you know ethically uh, is it just uh, you know uh, uh, you know it's so if we the world's first trillionaire will be a failure for humanity. You know, yeah. it's like that's not a success. Yeah, yeah. we can't let people. Yeah. yeah, I mean. Uh, and um, billionaires are a, fa- a failure for humanity. I mean, this this is not a success story. Um, nobody needs um, billion. You know, it's all about status. And we, we and if you when you get to billions or tens of billions or hundreds of billions and everything, it's not about the money. It's about your status because uh, we are you know comparison machines. Our you know super skill is uh, comparing one person to another. And if you uh, so the wealthier you are, you're always going to see uh, right. I need to be wealthier than that. So you've got this complete arms race, and wealth is just completely linked to your carbon emissions. You know, the wealthier yeah. you are, the bigger carbon footprint right. you've got. Um, you're not necessarily happier. You're not necessarily more secure. In terms of economic security, uh, you know, if you if you're very wealthy but living in a crime-ridden uh, country, you don't feel particularly economically secure either. Mm. So I mean, so there's lots and lots of problems there. Um, so. Uh, we argue that um, dealing with inequality, not creating perfect equality, but reducing inequality to a tolerable level, and we can see what's tolerable, like places in um, you know, Northern Europe, in Scandinavia, etc., where much more equal societies, but not far from being perfectly yeah. equal. Yeah. Um, you know, these are still very capitalist societies, but they, they function very well. There's a lot of trust in government, yeah. um, and, this, and you need Trust in government to take long-term decisions. If you're going to make a decision that goes from uh, that, you know, across generations, um, you know, across this century, which we, what we need to do with food and land and poverty uh, and energy, um, you have to you have to have trust in the governments yeah. to do that. Only governments can take those really big long-term decisions. And and we just argue you cannot do that without greater um, uh, uh, equality. Uh, that will that's a foundation for trust. And then finally, and this is a long, long answer no, on gender no. empowerment, uh, and that's just absolutely critical. Again, this is about functioning societies, and uh, and I can guarantee that uh, you know men cannot take any credit or can take can take all responsibility <laughs> for the, the patriarchal patriarchal society we have right now, and uh, and and driving the planet past uh, planetary boundaries. Um, so a, a more equal, more just uh, in terms of gender empowerment will have uh, a big, a disproportionate um, impact on, um, uh, on on creating functional societies, uh-huh. so creating societal cohesion. And we need that sort of yeah. social cohesion um, if we're going to make it through here. Mm-hmm. I was asking Daniel, I was like, well, is a citizen sign, which I think would address the poverty sign of uh, it. So, do you think that's possible? Like, could a living club? Okay, it's like, he's like, oh, it's half right. Oh.
No, there's too many jerk faces there. The floppy bass. No. See, see and, and do you know that that's the one treatment? And, uh, and, in, and we've had this uh, criticism in Sweden. It's like, oh, it can't be possible. They live in a dream world if they think we can uh, have like a universal basic um, income or universal basic dividend. And then we say, well, what happened in Alaska in, Alaska, uh, in the 1970s? A Republican, um, a Republican Party uh, decided that they would have a um, essentially universal basic income coming from a global commons. They would take money from the oil companies um, as a tax from the uh, 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 from the oil companies, and instead of putting the tax into the government, they'd put it into a fund, and that would be shared equally among every single um, adult in uh, in Alaska. And uh, it, on average, gives out about $1,300 every year. Wow. Under Sarah Palin, it gave out $3,400. You would not be able to uh, take that, um, that universal basic uh, dividend. It's, it's essentially what it is. Right. Nobody, no, it's so popular, yeah. you wouldn't be able to get rid of it. And what we argue, and we do some calculations, is that you could, um, you could if you, okay, that's for oil. Um, but what about for polluting the atmosphere? What about yeah. for mining? What about the you know public goods like um, uh, the financial infrastructure and the um, uh, our information infrastructure where we give a lot of our data away to Facebook and things like that? You know, if that was to go into a fund, mm -hmm. how much potentially could you get? And the, the numbers are you know between five and twelve thousand dollars a year, um, which is which is like a, a, a quite a, a game changing amount. And we argued that, okay, you know, this century, things are not looking good if we just continue as we are. This will be disastrous for humanity, okay? That's going to be disruptive. This is not good. We don't want to go there. But, okay, we want to transform the economy Then We need economic systems change. We need to change the whole energy system. The foundation of the global economy, we need to change within uh, a generation. And we need to change the entire food system. That's going to be disruptive. How do we help people? How do we bring that trust and social cohesion? How do we bring everybody on this journey? And we say progressive taxations and a universal basic dividend will help. That universal basic dividend will provide a safety net for people mm -hmm. um, as that transformation is happening. So if you work in a coal industry and you find out, okay, I'm losing my job, okay, but the government's investing in me and now I've got this universal basic dividend, oh, I could go back and retrain. I could retrain in something else. So I could go to university potentially or, you know, I've got $12,000. I could set up a business. I could become an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, or, you know, in this, yeah, maybe I could start buying some solar panels and start, you know, working out how to put them on roofs and, you know, create a new industry. Um, you know, so this, it, we need that as a safety net, but it's not just a safety net. I think it's also uh, like an innovation now. Yeah, opportunity. Yeah, in great opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right. I have two, we have, we have I want to like, keep us concise really so one th so earlier when you're talking I was saying like um what's impressive about what you guys are trying to do is that for me things are really complex right so like malthus for example is like oh we're everyone's gonna starve to death like we've reached this you know once we reach this thing and then he was like super wrong right so um because we were, he didn't account for like agricultural innovation and whatever and then so we can we can produce more things right so there's like I think we live in a space where people are optimistic about innovation. I think we're overly optimistic. Like I joke a lot about like in our work, I'm like, oh, there's this soccer ball and it's amazing. Like, you know, when like 
kids in Africa, give it to poor communities, like they'll kick it and it'll make, you know, it'll like be a generator and it gives them light. And then like, it's like got like seeds planted in it. They're like aerates their like dry land. And when they score goals, like, you know, hundred dollar bills fly out of it. But, <laughs> but I think like we like overly fixate on that. But something that's interesting when I think about it's like, I don't, I think, um, Things are really, really complex. You were talking about academia in the sense of like people stay in their lane, right? And they're hyper-focused. And it's like the nature of the way we write in academia and like peer-reviewed things forces people to do that more and more and more. And it's really easy to like hyper-focus because you you really need to just like study this one, you know, you're, this is your field, right? But in trying to deal with th this like behemoth of like a problem, you there i i would i i think there's not anyone that really understands all the complex systems right there's like so much things that are happening but and I'm, so i'm complimenting like in this like you it, it's it it feels to me like i can i can like get a grasp of like okay maybe maybe this has been simplified enough to be able to to figure out how do you make that next step to do it right and that's what that was like what you did but I, my, my question to you would be is like is there this like malthian like problem there where some, like maybe you got maybe maybe there maybe you're just like chicken little right like running around saying the sky's falling right and ultimately like there's an innovation that's just going to fix it all maybe it's ai right maybe like they use these model you know 50 years ago they used computer models to do this and maybe like tomorrow AI is going to be like, dude, you guys are dumb. All you had to do was this. No, <laughs> I'm setting you up a little bit, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, with without doubt. But we do know we, you know, number one, you know, limits to growth in '72 actually just got. Um, it, it looked. This is a lot. The media talks about. Oh, you know, it predicted um, social collapse in the 21st century. Society would collapse, etc. It'd be just a, a complete crash. Um, and uh, um, but the, that was one of the scenarios. It looked at multiple yeah. scenarios. Um, but actually, now the problem is the scenario that we followed most closely up uh, to that point is yeah. that one. Okay. So it's a number yeah. one. So researchers, we don't just look at single scenarios and we don't just say, oh, this is what's going to happen. What we try to do is look at multiple scenarios and go, okay, so, well, if this happens, because there's so much uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, so, so, so often, you know, in, in climate research, we'd look at dozens and dozens. In the book, though, we just look at two scenarios just to try to keep it really simple. The business yeah. as usual. And, you know, um, the the giant leap. You know, how do we? Yeah. How do we? You know, is it what we wanted to ask? Is like, is it possible even for this population, uh, this size, you know, nine, ten billion people eventually to to live a good life on, on planet planet Earth? And so that on that scenario, we could say, yeah, it's from the best of our knowledge, and um, it looks like we can. You know, electric cars are a solution, but we can't all drive around in SUVs. I mean, yeah. that's uh, that that's just not going to go. We need mass transit systems that uh, that are efficient um, and and definitely smaller cars. But then the other thing about the prediction, I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, on you know, a, a year to year to year to year thing, you know, it's really, really difficult. You know, when, when you know, the pandemic, you know, hits, you know, a financial crisis hits, you know, what's the next, you know, Ukraine, a war in Ukraine, you know, with um, yeah. uh, with Russia, et cetera. You know, these things um, are, are very, very difficult to predict. 
So, so what, why should anybody have faith in, in models able to, to look at these things? But some things, you know, we can watch the trends just change over time. You know, like poverty has just come down and down and down and down and down and down and down. Throughout all of this, through the collapse of the Soviet Union, through the global financial crisis, et cetera, we've made inroads on that. That's one of the reasons I'm optimistic. You know, we can keep going on that. With greenhouse gas emissions, you know, the other side of things, we can make all these models and things, but we can actually see, you know, a lot of the models from decades ago show us going up and up and up because we know it's just related to economic growth. And as, ec- as the economy grows, then we can just, uh, we can easily, uh, you know, um, uh, we can easily then map that to what will happen with CO2 emissions. And with population, you know, we're very, very good at predicting population. Yeah. There have been now for, 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 for many decades. The UN Population Statistics Division is um, is excellent because, you know, these things, you know, births and deaths and longevity, et cetera, how, how that's changing. We can we can see the patterns and we can, um, we can uh, you know, imagine how they, they move out into the future. I would love to take this so far back because I always want to know why like why is this your life's work like when you were a boy did you like i have a six-year-old who loves science and so like i don't know it's six like if he thinks he's going to be you know doing something like you're doing it it's like in your background from like when you were a child when did you know you wanted to do this kind of field of work what was like your like a quick version of your past okay well yeah well actually the quick version is uh fairly uh yeah you know i i remember nasa published um published a, a, an image, satellite image of the Earth at night um, uh, for the uh, the first time it did this, it did this composite image of hundreds of photographs of Earth at night to put it together. And it was like, you know, that image just stuck in my head when I saw it as a teenager. It was like, uh, that was the Anthropocene, you know, this is like uh, humanity's footprint on Earth. And, uh, and I was just like completely amazed because for until that point, a lot of the astronauts and NASA and co had talked about how um, fragile Earth was, um, how beautiful it was, and how humanity, you could barely notice. It was just all this beauty, this bubble, this uh, floating ball in space, this biosphere. Um, but humanity, you know, we're just kind of totally inconsequential. And then, you know, it's like this sort of big reveal when you see Earth at light. It's like, oh my God, it's like you've got everything on there you know you've got the eastern seaboard of the u.s western seaboard you know lit up like you know christmas trees you've got the gas flares in saudi arabia and everything you've even got like japanese fishing fleets shining lights down onto the surface of the ocean to draw fish up mm-hmm. and into the nets and everything more and the um you know across russia you can see the uh, uh trans-siberian railroad and everything so every part of humanity is just like lit up and it's just everywhere you know and so when i saw that i was like ah okay i i kind of thought you know what what at that time i just want to live a life where i i do no harm and um and and that's virtually impossible but um uh then i i did start thinking well how can i um do something more positive you know how can i try to um, to understand that so i see so i do see uh, you know i studied then um astronautic engineering uh you know i was um, interested in you know, satellite design, maybe being a space, you know, astronaut or something like that. But I, I changed course there as well because um, I felt a lot of people in that space on my degree course were just moved into the defense industry. The big opportunities yeah. were in defense industry. And I was like, I don't want to be part of the defense industry. And then, um, and then just moved um, into, uh, 
you know, earth system science and, um, you know, system dynamics. Um, and it's, so it's been, yeah, an interesting uh, ride. All right. So you touched on this a lot as we talked and it's, which is so about, we talked like certainty and uncertainty, but like to put you on the spot in this is be like, if you could capture in a more like short few sentences, like what is the thing that you understand that you feel most certain about that you would want to share with people that you could, when you meet a guy in a diner and you're like, I know this thing really well and I can tell you about it. Is there, what's that thing? Okay. Well, yeah. Um, that's, that's a good question because a lot of what I do is looking out into, into future scenarios. And so um, it's very, very difficult to be uh, very certain about, about things. And we have to be sort of, uh, we have to use language very carefully. <laughs> of course, yes. Yeah. Yeah. All that, which is not what you want. No, yeah, your answer is like I can't be sure about anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I'm sure so, some scientists will say they can't be certain about anything, but I really can't. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they could be a little bit more certain, but yes, when you're looking at um, the future, it, it is it is it is more difficult. I think um, I per- personally, I, I think with climate tipping points. Um, they're the kind. They're the things that really, really worry me more than anything. Uh, uh, I think, it, it, as the evidence mounts, it's clearer that we are much closer to climate tipping points than um, than, than we thought ten years ago, and um, and that's that that's extremely concerning. Um, but uh, but even with the co- this, the science of tipping points is just so complex that as I said earlier, you know, we probably won't know we've crossed them. We can't be certain until um until we've actually um actually crossed them so um so that 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 and that's terrifying yeah yeah no yeah absolutely absolutely um and you know a couple of other things i suppose in in the book um were uncertainty so one one interesting thing we included in the model was a social tension index and um uh, and a well-being index and um, to the best of my knowledge, they haven't been included in, in these global models before. And and I, I'm not going to say they're perfect. They need a lot of uh, improvements and things. But but I do think social tensions will increase in the world. Um, and I think we can be certain about that because the economic system hasn't changed. And if the economic system is going to drive us to have more um, billionaires and eventually a trillionaire, if we, we stay in that, that, that system, then... We can expect more social tension because uh, democracies can't survive with this sort of level of um, inequality. Um, so, I'm, so I feel very certain about that. I feel very confident that we need to uh, we need economic systems transformation. That inequality um, is an absolute foundation for that. That we need to bring um, everybody on this journey, and they won't come on this journey unless everybody sees something in it for them, and they and they see. Everybody's in it together. We're all working together. So I feel certain about that. <laughs> but it sounds like you're optimistic, though, and that's what gives me a little hope that that you're optimistic. I am. I'm, I'm really, really optimistic. You know, I have two kids. They're just the bright teenagers, really engaged in science as well, and really engaged in in art and football and and everything. And we talk about these issues all the time. And uh, and they're optimistic because they they feel. Yeah, you know, we got this. You know, you guys fail. We'll sort it out. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is which is good. And I, I feel optimistic because because of the, because of the young people, because of the young movement, people like Greta and uh, uh, the youth movements um, have created a completely new energy here. I see a lot of countries talking about becoming well-being economies. 
Um, and I can see that transformation can happen really, really fast. You know, um, I can. I I think the energy transformation is going to happen much, much faster. Yeah. Than, uh, yeah. Than most yeah. people predict. And you can see that you know in Norway, it's like you know, because uh, people are going to make money doing it, so it's just inevitable. Yeah, it's going to be profitable. I mean, in, increasingly more and more people see that the sustainable solution is the cheapest solution and it's miles better than the, the, um, the old solutions. Um, so, you know, those two things are sort of um, unbelievable combinations. So they're going to drive very, very rapid change. So I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm very uh, I'm a promoter of social tipping points um, that, uh, you know, that through you know if we can get five ten percent of people moving um uh, in a direction you just create a tipping point and then soon everybody um starts moving in that direction and um so so i do think it can happen very very fast i'm just hoping it happens fast enough um so we avoid the tipping points this is why he doesn't cry at night that's why he doesn't cry at night oh well, thank you so much for your time You're welcome. lovely i we, we've been Really excited yeah. to talk to anyone who had any involvement in this book. So we're really, really thrilled that you took the time to speak with us. At Global Partners for Development, our mission is to advance community-led initiatives that improve education and public health in East Africa. We envision a world in which every East African community has the capacity to implement dynamic, sustainable solutions to the challenges they face. To learn more, visit gpfd.org.